I don't know if I can focus with her staring at me. I know. I know. I feel like she's the new producer of the show. Ophelia, are we are we um staying on track? Arf. Hi, this is Cody Dagalorians. This is Neil Dagalorians. And welcome to another episode of Bearded Fruit. <laughs> I really look forward to the little sounds every week. They're going to be different every week. I know, that's Get what you said. with something unexpected. She didn't say that. She didn't say that. No, stop putting words in her mouth. She's got enough going on in there. That's right. Yeah, we have a very special guest in the studio today. We have with us um, Ophelia, the intern. Uh, our, our dog Ophelia, who's now hanging out in our office, uh, she's discovered a new spot. She hangs out in a chair that I have in my office, and she's kind of staring at us, making sure that we're saying smart and coherent things that uh, will entertain listeners everywhere. And she just got up and walked away, so <laughs> everyone's a critic. You aren't being woke enough! <laughs> so, um... Yeah, we're still uh, producing episodes here in quarantine. Things are starting to shift around. I think we're now at nine, week nine, I guess, of this uh, endeavor. Time is meaningless. Uh, but uh, things are going to start to relax this week. Uh, on my birthday, of all things, very excited about that. Um, I turned 44, and people can start roaming around in the state of Connecticut. And the week after that is my birthday, and I turn 30. Yay! Go ahead, y'all. Do the math. Click, 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 click on the little calculators. It's not. It's 14. It's 14. So um, this week we're going to talk about some stuff that I was observing on Twitter that intersects with a community that I uh, am also a part of, not just the queer community, but I'm also a big horror fan. And uh, I do engage with a lot of horror creators uh, online. I do like horrors. I do. (laughs) Horror. Horror. Pause for mic adjustment. So... There was a lot of online talk this week about Joe Bob Briggs, uh, who, if you're unfamiliar with, is like one of these like legendary horror hosts, kind of like um, Sven Gulli and, and Elvira. He uh, was the host of Monster Vision in the 90s, if you watch that on TBS. And he was away for a while, but has returned to hosting horror on Shudder, the, the horror network, with a show called The Last Drive-In. And um, <clears throat> Briggs has been kind of a tricky figure. Uh, for quite a long time he's the creation of a guy named john irving bloom and so briggs is kind of this character and it's uh he's sort of this unapologetic midwestern redneck uh with like that like american swagger you know and uh, he's got this really incredible knowledge of horror cinema and the whole thing that he does by reviewing movies and introducing them and hosting them in this like horror host context is sort of sending up uh, I guess like a dude bro you know uh, America guns and guns and ladies and titties and I mean ladies and titties are part of it not all ladies have titties yeah but go uh, off Joe but it's kind of like that red state guy kind of attitude and it's sort of a send up of it but like you know satire when it's really good, can also be misconstrued uh, in a lot of ways. So I guess, like, my question is, is it actually satire? Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. Is, the, that is, like, the, the general stated intention. Uh, and yes, he's not Joe Bob Briggs. 
uh, he's deeply identified with Joe Bob Briggs. And like, honestly, he's, he's become this hero to this kind of dude, bro, America horror guy who they, who, while he may be sort of sending them up and doing this kind of comic version of it, they're seeing literally themselves in Joe Bob Briggs. So basically it's like a Tyler Durden situation where people don't understand that Tyler Durden is in fight club, a terrible figure and that he's not actually somebody to be like idolized. And yet here he is being idolized. And like even the whole snowflake mentality that comes from that book and that movie, they they're, they're using it out of context in a way that doesn't actually make sense to the, the origin of it is what you're saying. Basically. Yes. That's, that's essentially what Joe Bob Briggs is. And, and like in the horror community, I mean, I grew up watching monster vision and this whole like, guy in the cowboy the cowboy shirt sitting in front of his trailer watching horror movies and they're generally B movies they're not like they're not like he's not watching hereditary he's watching you know like slumber party massacre 2 and the trauma movies and things like that and what he's done is by he's also like sending up this kind of per- person in America but he's also really dug into and has this incredible knowledge and respect for B horror filmmakers and he sort of takes you inside the creation of these movies show you how all the creators connect and see the work that they did and he finds the art in these schlocky kind of like unnecessary titty kind of movies that horror is enormously well known for <laughs> Uh, for like the seven, this the seventies and eighties, and 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 really continuing on to today, uh, but he's, you know, he made me, he helped me fall in love with those movies, and uh, I was really excited when he came back to Shutter because the last drive-in is a blast to watch, and you get to watch some really great. You know, like one one of the recent ones I got to I watched Chopping Mall again as part of the last drive in, and that was a lot of fun. That's a that's a schlocky horror film from the eighties, and he had a lot of great stories from behind the scenes, and it brought a new dimension to that movie, which I loved. So, um, we're not just talking about horror fandom and horror films here uh this past week uh, if you were kind of on gay twitter or horror twitter you know that joe bob briggs got in a little bit of trouble this week there was an article that he wrote last summer um from Taki mag that has been making the rounds again this week and it's called i know a guy who is lgbtqrstuvwxyz and a lukewarm take at best <laughs> Yes, it is. It is uh, definitely not a hot take, but uh, it's it's basically the piece you'd exactly expect from that title. It's a nudge, nudge. What's the deal with what's the what's the deal with goes queers kind of piece where he's poking fun at the acronym, at gender identity, the the nomenclature of gender identity, the words that people use. Prone. He makes some jabs at pronouns, uh, and it. All of the usual targets of this kind of low-hanging fruit of comedy. So here's a a quote from that piece just to give you sort of a, a sense of it. Quote, can we begin by agreeing that LGBTQ, which, by the way, is now supposed to be LGBTQIA, is the worst acronym ever invented? I used to remember it by saying large butt, but that's before they put the Q on the end of it. And when they did put the Q on the end of it, they couldn't even agree on what it stands for in italics. Um, so now is my part of the podcast where I get to have a monologue and go off because I'm not a part of... I didn't know this guy existed until you made me watch a thing with him. So, if this is supposed to be satire, 
And that is how I'm framing it, regardless of the intent. If this is supposed to be satire, if your satire doesn't come across to the people that it's satirizing as satire, then it's bad. It's not good. It's not crafted well enough. If they see a character who's supposed to be satirical as reality or as representation, then it's bad satire to begin with. So, like, the entire idea of maybe, like, because I read, like, there's there's they're trying to like um, frame it as oh well it's a character and it's not necessarily him and he's he's supposed to be this ignorant rednecky type but the problem is, is that people read this and say yeah that's exactly how I believe um, so f- first of all like learn to satire I guess I don't know it just feels it feels like a not only a weak argument but also just a weak um, concept to begin with secondly. Secondly, if if you're going to be talking about this in a magazine, maybe I don't know. The 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 magazine itself is suspect. Like Taki, not Hot Cheetos, but Taki <laughs> magazine is very suspect because if you scroll down to the end of the article, it sees you see the contributing columnists. One of them is Ann Coulter. Should we really even care about this? publication to begin with because anybody who gives Ann Coulter a platform in my book is like inherently canceled or at the very least postponed if not canceled postponed so I mean if if you're gonna be like bringing in this character and all that stuff I guess that makes sense okay this is Ann Coulter she is inherently a very ridiculous character so it makes sense to to jump into this world it just to me was suspect to begin with and whether or not he agrees or believes in this actual argument that he's putting forward, I feel like at the end of the day, it's a failure of satire. So those whole points are moot. It's it's just a failure. It's a failure of satire and not even in a good way or an interesting way. It's just a failure. Also, like, how are you going to be criticizing a group from the outside? Like, that inherently is also kind of gross. But, you know, whatever. So I guess, great. So that becomes sort of the question then. So there's this... This piece exists. Is it just a troll? Is it is it a dismissible troll? Is it bad comedy, but still comedy? Is it homophobia? Is it is it just a troll or is it dangerous? Because a lot of the conversation around it has taken a lot of different... All of those answers were answered in the affirmative. All those questions were answered in the affirmative in some part of the conversation. So like... How do you look at this, first of all, from that lens? Is it homophobic? I mean, whether or not it is homophobic or is intended to be homophobic, I think at the end of the day, what it does do is it it champions homophobic and just very simplistic forms of thinking. Like the tone of the writing, especially when he was talking about pronouns, was just gross. It was just gross. It wasn't even, like, insightful or, I mean, it wasn't funny. They weren't, like, funny takes necessarily. It was, oh, I suppose we're supposed to be saying this now. I think we're supposed to say this now. And they don't even know what it means. Like, sir, that's not even accurate for starters. And and secondly, 
it just it, it just didn't there was no punchline you have to have a punchline when you have a joke and in this case it's just a punch there's no punchline so like it's not even comedy as far as i'm concerned and it's not even like oh this is offensive and so that that makes it not comedy no it's just not a joke in the first place it that's not how jokes work i guess the secondary question here for me is how do we in the context of in the context of homophobia in the larger sense, where does this kind of thing fit in? You know, how I, I always I always like to, to I always talk about the, the notion of being able to hold two things in your hands at once. And so what are the two things to hold here? One of them is, yes, all of those points are right. It is it perpetuates homophobic ideas and homophobic ideas are harmful in their essence. Is this piece harmful in the same kind of way as other kinds of homophobia? Is all homophobia created equal? And if it's a homophobia, if it's homophobia that's couched in comedy that's ineffective, or homophobia that's couched in in just being like a troll, is it the same thing as other kinds of homophobia that exist in the world? I, I wouldn't say it's the same, but what it does do is it validates people who believe those things. It validates their beliefs. It like makes it gives them a, a sense of affirmation that this person who represents who they are, where they come from, etc., believes these things, whether or not it's true, whether or not it's reality. It validates them. So this this bad comedy, this bad troll, is at the end of the day validating harmful beliefs. Um, and again, like this is a website that publishes Anne Coulter. People actually believe Anne Coulter. People actually follow her and think she is onto something and is really smart and all that stuff. So those same people are going to read this and whether or not it's satire doesn't matter to them because it's validating what they've been saying and it gives them more credence to it. It gives them more claim. It gives them more authority to say, yes, this is ridiculous and stupid, those damn queers. So like... I think, you know, trying to say is this as harmful as is is kind of a moot point because at the end of the day, it it's not necessarily about quantifying the harm. It's about kind of just seeing what it could do. What is it, its potential? And its potential is I can see some boomers mailing this to a whole bunch of their friends being like, ha, 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 this is so funny. And even though they wouldn't necessarily repeat that stuff out loud, it just validates these beliefs. So like y you hecked up, Joe. <laughs> like you yeah. hecked up. Yeah, I agree. And it reminds me of um, Dr. Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and some of the uh, the things that uh, I was very lucky enough to be part of a, a training with him around the ideas of how to be an anti-racist. For those of you and, at home playing the bearded fruit drinking game, take a sip every time Cody references Dr. Ibram <laughs> Kendi. Yo, I, I'm, <laughs> no apologies, bitch. Because no apologies here because he's a fucking genius. But what he he articulates really clearly, and the the book How to Be an Anti-Racist is a really sort of his manifesto about this idea is that there is no such thing as being a not racist like you can't be a not racist you either are racist or anti-racist the things you are doing either perpetuate a racist system or work against a racist system there isn't just a place where you're removed from the conversation so i completely agree i have always said the same thing as with homophobia you're either you're either doing things that perpetuate homophobic systems or you're fighting against them you're doing your things are in the opposite direction you can't just make a homophobic joke that doesn't participate in homophobia. You can't be an innocent bystander of oppressive systems. And like, if it's supposed to be satire, it's not like to, to, to take from drag. It's not enough. Like it's not drag enough. It's not elevated enough to the point where it's ridiculous because 
that's a sentiment. He's 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 repeating sentiments that people actually believe and isn't taking it that next step to absurdity to point out how absurd of what the things he's saying are. And to be frank, like I don't I don't have the same connection to this character and this idea of satire as you. I don't necessarily trust or believe that it isn't what he actually believes the person. I I don't trust that because of just the way it's it's written, the way that he's writing. It doesn't to me look like satire at all because it's not enough. Like I know people, I'm probably re- related to people who believe those things. And so like it's it's too rooted in reality to be satire. It needs to be more absurd. It needs to be more ridiculous and he just he didn't go there. So it's like Again, learn to satire, like do absurdity. If you're going to be satirical, be satirical and do it well, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I have feelings, (laughs) period. Um, Yeah, so, of course, Twitter was alarmed. Twitter. (laughs) Twitter. And that's so rare these days. It never happens. Twitter was very alarmed by what was happening. Twitter got really mad. And there was a lot of online discourse around this, particularly in the horror community. And um, there was, of course, then a lot of abuse and bullying online directed at the people who were trying to have a conversation about this particular thing in the the Twitter sphere. And uh, it was, of course, really ugly. Uh, one of the people uh, who spoke out, and it was like the piece that I, I liked the most, is from a writer named Terry Mesnard from the site Gaily Dreadful, and he wrote a piece called "Queer Mutants Deserve Better." And I thought it was one of like the 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 better pieces in all of the conversation, and it was actually one that was uh, the center of a lot of backlash from Joe Bob Briggs fans who were just defending him. Uh, Terry talked about getting messages where he was uh, called a faggot, and he was threatened, and he was really demeaned online because of this piece where he was just really saying, hey, we, we should maybe... Uh, I don't know, like think about ourselves a little bit and try to make a nice space for queer people. Uh, So here's a quote from Terry's piece, which I thought was really great. Quote, what I don't get is the singular need to punch down, whether it's at women filmmakers, people of color, or the LGBTQ community, particularly when there is a wide world of other meaner and more powerful entities that could use a good Joe Bob spanking. But that's not the Joe Bob Briggs way. The issue is the fact he works at Cinestate, that he's on Shutter, that he is a guest at film festivals. All of this creates an omnipresence that makes the LGBTQ and the POC horror community fearful, afraid that if they speak up or question something, a cadre of his mutant fam will swoop in and tear them down. Or for those who make money writing about films, that they will somehow be excommunicated since the biggest seat of horror power right now comes from Cinestate, who owns Fangoria, as well as the site that Briggs writes for. Let me see if this will... <laughs> I just thwarped a fan. Ah, <laughs> uh, fan thwarp, yeah. That was that was a fan thwarp moment, yeah. Yeah, it, it was. It's a really smart piece, and um, what I what I really liked about Terry's piece was it was uh, it was very respectful and it was very kind. It was clearly from a person who was also a fan of him. Yeah, and he explicitly goes on to say like, "Don't cancel." Like, I don't uh, I don't necessarily agree with canceling, but also this isn't calling to cancel him necessarily. And and I I, I appreciate that, um, not only because of the 
just like quick little side note commentary on cancel culture but like it, it goes to show like he, he puts his foot down even further saying like this isn't necessarily me saying he should be fired this is me saying we need to be critical of him and i am being critical of him and i think you know that's it's it's also you know fair to point out we're talking about this through Twitter we're talking about um, the outrage on Twitter Twitter's only two hundred forty character two hundred eighty characters whereas this was a very well written thought very thoughtful piece where whereas like Twitter is very um, go go immediate immediate reply so I mean in, inherently that makes sense that uh, something that is a bit more calm and a bit more kind comes from a long form than a, than a Twitter form um, so womp well and I think that like. And then I want to loop back to Cemetery's points, but like the thing that points to like this this idea of um, to talk a moment about Twitter outrage, Twitter outrage, and Twitter conversations and Twitter discourse around things because it is so limited and because it is so 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 sharpened, you have to go for the biggest punch in order to be seen or heard or engaged with. So you have to go to the extreme and real conversation doesn't happen in the extreme. Real conversation is complicated and it's nuanced. It takes time. It takes uh, thoughtful parsing out of ideas and you can't do that on Twitter. But because Twitter exists in this very public space and you get that that sense, um, like Gia Tolentino talks about this in a great article in a great essay from Trick Mirror. She talks about the internet um, messing up our sense of scale and we sort of see ourselves in the wrong scale when we're online. Because people are liking and retweeting us and talking to us, we we outsize our, our own sense of who we are and how we fit into larger things. And that just continues to magnify the more that you're on. So people think that by tweeting, uh, retweeting somebody's really smart comment or making a sassy hot take on Twitter, you're doing something. And that's air quotes around doing something. That it's doing something. And it isn't. The scale is wrong. Like you're not doing anything by calling out Joe Bob Briggs or saying, I believe he should be canceled on Twitter. You haven't done a fucking thing other than tweet. Um, doing something and like acting against actual oppressive systems is a, is a more complicated notion, but Twitter fools us into believing and not just Twitter, but also like other social media platforms fool us into believing because of the way it distorts our, distorts our sense of scale that we are in fact acting. Um, two things. Number one, for those of you at home, take a drink because Cody referenced trick mirror. That's also on the bearded fruit drinking game. Um, Secondly, when reading this outline, because that's the thing we do for this podcast now, I actually read the outline beforehand and don't just show up and react. Um, I thought it was really interesting that you talked about Twitter outrage because, um, sweetheart, with, with all the love in the world, you are angry on Twitter often. And by no means are you outraged on Twitter. I do believe those are two different things, and I will give you that. You do, like, I, I've seen you tweet in, with with passion and with anger. Um and you know, like everybody's guilty of that. It, by no means am I saying, "Ha! How dare you make this criticism?" Because you too participate. <laughs> um, like, like how how dare you criticize society, but also participate in it? Interesting. Like that's not what I'm saying, but it's just interesting to me that you know, even people who are like you and are and are totally and you're all you've always been critical of that. You've you've always been critical of it. You also still allow emotions to come through on Twitter because that's the platform. The platform itself is is very angry. It's a very angry, quick response platform. Um and that's why I tend to to um actually that's part of the reason why I love YouTube so much, <laughs> um, is because of creators like 
um, like um, ContraPoints and I'm forgetting his last name. I just started following him. Carlos Maza, I think. Um, they they do these these very beautiful discourse uh, conversations, and that's what they are. They're written by themselves, and they perform them by themselves, but ultimately they're conversations that they create these characters and engage in a dialogue to go through this really messy, nuancey stuff where there is no necessarily right answer. Um, and Twitter doesn't allow for that. And even to a certain extent, writing necess doesn't necessarily allow for that. It doesn't allow for a conversation so much as it is a monologue. So I think these kinds of things need to be conversations and not monologues. And and Twitter's neither. It's just shouting. <laughs> Twitter's just shouting into the abyss. And then sometimes the abyss shouts back. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, yeah, I'm going to lie. Yeah, sure. I get pissed off on Twitter. And and then I will I will do all the things that I say are bad to do this is a call out for it is Cody. no but like at, but at the same time i also know what i'm doing and i think there's i i do believe that there is some validity and self-awareness even though you do also engage mm -hmm. in the other thing i do try to balance it out with other things like i mean i try to be as aware as possible that if i am going to spend 20 minutes on twitter being kind of a dick what I'm going to go do on the other hand is try to like raise up a voice or or create make something positive and, and make a make a space on my Twitter feed for some, for a, maybe like a book. Somebody should probably go and grab that they wouldn't have otherwise read or direct someone to some experience that'll be positive and that'll maybe be a, like a queer positive, whatever, whatever that is to try to like balance those things, because, you know, you can't just be all gloom and doom and Twitter mad. And ultimately, being Twitter mad isn't a productive thing, but amplifying a voice is a positive thing. That is a constructive thing. Um, so counterpoint, um, for those of you playing at home with the drinking game, I'm about to reference Jack Halberstam. Um, in his essay, um, uh, Queer Violence, Imagined Violence, which I should make you read, um, Halberstam talks about the... Uh, possibility of rage as a political tool and is very specific about slogans um, and in in this essay he not only is very berating of the old-timey form of political protest being uh, silent uh, not silent but uh, nonviolent resistance and the idea that an imagined violence is the is not necessarily a physical violence but one that pits the subordinate group against the dominant group that an example of that during the AIDS epidemic was bash back um, and this notion of queer people bashing the oppressors um, and it wasn't necessarily oh they are suddenly fighting against um, oppressors it's this idea that if we can instill a sense of fear, um, based on potential violence, um, that maybe the oppressor will think twice. Maybe there'll be some hesitance. And when I <laughs> take another sip, I'm about to talk about teaching. Um, when I teach this article in my class, um, I use uh, the Me Too movement as an example of an imagined violence because through the Me Too movement, this this uh, culture of calling specifically men out on sexual harassment at work made them think twice. It made it inherently made men think twice about how they treat women in the workplace because they didn't want to get called out. They didn't want to get fired. They didn't want to get canceled. That is a form of imagined violence. It's a form of um, a violence. And, and Halberstam even breaks down this idea that violence isn't always physical. It's also economic. It's also emotional. It's also psychological. Um, 
so like the Me Too movement created this the sense of hesitance, this this sense of power within women specifically that they were never given before, and it subverted the notion of violence. It subverted the notion of what harm could look like. So with that being said, I bring that up because I wonder how Twitter rage could um, be a form of a political uh, of rage as a political tool. What does that look like? What could that look like? And I wonder if that's even possible with Twitter, with how it works. And I, I tend to maybe lean towards no. I tend to think maybe it's it's not necessarily a platform that allows for uh, utilizing rage as a political tool because at the end of the day, it's really more of an echo chamber, if anything. Um, and so that doesn't do anything. But I also will say that... I, I do feel there is some potential there. There is some ability of rage in a digital space like Twitter, um, at the very least, working as consciousness raising, working as a means to um, show how much passion there is for something and that that passion is coming from a sense of reality. That passion is coming from somebody's experience. So I think there's, you know... It's not one way or the other, but I do think it leans towards maybe not allowing for that form of progressive progression. I don't, I don't know. I'm academic. Well, no, it, it's <laughs> really sad that you sort of negated your entire monologue with a. But I had no, to reference Halberstam. I, I, I do, I do think it's true. I, I, the notion that. The notion that rage and anger can't be useful is one I've always pushed back against. I think it's a very dumb idea to think that we can live in a world that is all like uh, uh, support and kindness and love because it just that just doesn't work. That love has limits. Love is not everything. It has limits and its limit is changing the world. <laughs> like literally its limit is changing the world. Like it, the world has never been changed by a hug. I'm going to make like a series of same-sex marriage cards that say love has a limit. It does. And... I think it's also irresponsible for us to think that whenever we do utilize anger and utilize rage, that it's going to be clean and neat. It isn't. I mean, anger is a messy emotion. And so the 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 action that it would take in the world would also, by extension, have to be messy. And I've also always thought, too, like, we... I feel like we want very much for there to be for for activism to to change systems, but to do it in a way that's clean and neat and orderly. And I just don't think that's the natural order of things. The systems that are discriminatory and the systems that we live in that are oppressive and that do other people, that's the ordered, systematic, structured approach. That's neat and clean because it divides people into who is in and who is out. So you are not going to be able to fight order with order. The thing that's going to that's going to mess up order is chaos. So your if you're going to push back against systems of oppression, it seems to me that that process is not going to be easy. It's going to be really fucking hard and messy and uncomfortable and contradictory and and be two things at once, which is a pain in the ass. But that's also queer right Some, like something something masters tools masters house dismantle audre lord I mean, something. yeah exactly like the the notion the idea that you're gonna you know that we're gonna quietly and cleanly work our way to to liberation 
seems really boneheaded to me. It seems very foolish. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be contradictory. It's going to be messy because that's what progress is. Well, and with that said, too, I think I think that's where a lot of my my own hesitance towards the inherent, oh, like Twitter slacktivist um, rhetoric. I, I think my hesitance from that is that it's such a slippery slope into respectability politics and I think that's why I can't fully say whether or not Twitter is a useful or or not a useful um, political tool because I don't I, I think a lot of those criticisms do just like revolve and eventually devolve into just this oh well you're not doing activism the way I think you should do it so that means you're actually being harmful to the cause rather than being helpful to the cause um, because you're calling people out instead of treating them with kindness instead of treating the Nazis with kindness you're calling them out and um, and all that stuff uh, you're actually being hurtful and I I, I don't I, I don't subscribe to that. I also think there are very legitimate criticisms of of Twitter rage. Um, I just I just always am cautious about when um, the line between legitimate criticism and simple respectability politics. So it's it's complicated always. Everything's complicated. Why is it so complicated? Because that's what it is to be a human being. Take take a sip. We're talking about nuance. So the last thing I wanted to come around to is this idea of. Um, what do you do with your problematic fave? Cancel. Like, how do you kill your heroes, right? So Cancel them. I love Joe Bob Briggs, and I loved Monster Vision, and I really enjoy The Last Drive-In. I like, I like how much he knows about horror. But I also hold that he could, he could potentially be a legitimate asshole, or he could be just a trolley asshole who doesn't know how to do satire well. And is punching down, and is, is perpetuating a system that harms people in my community. I think you don't necessarily need to cancel him, but I think you should advocate for a new voice regardless, because homeboys have been in the game for how long now? Like, regardless, maybe step aside. And I think that's what that uh, article by Terry goes into a little bit, talking about he's at film festivals, he's invited to things, he does all these things. Like, maybe make room, maybe make space for new voices in horror and, and new commentary in horror that isn't necessarily a white dude satirizing a white dude and satirizing it poorly. Maybe, maybe there's, maybe he has a retirement plan. Maybe he's fine. Maybe he'll be okay. But I think it's, as people who exist in spaces of privilege, you know that's really hard to do. It's hard for people to do that. It's hard for people to take to take what power that they have and make space for others. I'm not saying that like you should be feel good about that, but it's it's a difficult thing for people to do. It's hard to ask of them. It's hard to do. Well, Joe just needs to take the L and deal with it. Um, but I mean, also this this isn't that far cry of a how can you respect the art but hate the artist? Like how can you separate art from the artist? Um, that conversation is pretty much related to this and that's why i feel strange when people talk about loving michael jackson because of all the stuff they found at neverland ranch um i feel weird about my childhood and adolescent favorite band brand new because their lead singer went through all these allegations modestly recently and pretty much fessed up to them like he he pretty much apologized for it but it still made me feel weird because these albums that meant so much to me in middle school and high school are suddenly like 
it's strange. You can't listen to them and not think of that. And I think at the end of the day, if you are conflicted with this person who has created this content that you enjoyed to the point where you can't watch that content or engage in that content without thinking about it, you just need to let it go. Like that's the only thing you can do. You just got to let it go. And, and I've also been thinking a lot lately about, um, our expectations uh, of of communities and this like then and progress as an illusion that uh, this idea that because like the the world is fundamentally built and this sounds very nihilistic but the world is fundamentally built against us because we are not white queer heterosexual people uh, the world isn't structured for us the world is structured to push us down and push other people up. And that that's how the world is structured. And all of the little versions, the, the micro versions of the macro world, because they exist in the macro world, also have the same problems. So every community that you're a part of, your neighborhood, your family, your friend circle, your office at work, the horror community, they all will reflect, they'll, they'll mirror what the world looks like and how the world works because they're in it. So you can never expect any community to be a safe one. Right? Like, I don't think there's a way to, to believe, even within the queer community, you know, you look at, look at, look at the, 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 the socio dynamics of the, the queer community. There's a lot of bullshit that happens and a lot of othering that happens that mirrors what happens in the outside world within our own community of queer people. And like, I think you can be mad at it. You should be mad at it, but I don't know that it's always right to be surprised by it or to not expect it. And to, Try to operate in the world knowing that every community will disappoint you and every community will fail you because it's just not built for you. And until you can change the structure of the whole, until the whole world changes its structure and until we redesign the macro world, every micro world will disappoint us. And the best that we can do and the thing that we should be doing is to kind of like say like, all right, I see you. I got you. I know who you are. You showed me. So I'm going to make over here in this place, I'm going to make what I think the world should be like. I'm going to take the people that I want to raise up and raise them up. I'm going to cr- try to create the, the world that I want to see in small steps and in small ways, like whittling away at the bullshit and not expect anymore that the larger world will ever have a place for me. <laughs> that was another thwarp for yeah. all of you at home take I, a sip i'm just like i don't know i feel like it's i'm still it's an idea that i'm still kind of like thinking through and kind of owning a bit but i think it's for it to me it feels like the right one like to stop expecting why expect the world to be any different than it is and well and that's where you get things like this gaily dreadful mag like yeah. blog it's because this person was in in a community and didn't feel fully accepted or felt like there wasn't a certain thing happening. That's how you get publications like The Root. That's how you get um, all these other things that exist because they don't already exist. So then they get created. Um, and yeah, like you're right. There is no perfect system. There's no perfect thing. So even those have probably have their own problems. Um, but we just do the best we can and we try to improve when we get called out. That's all you can do. Because when we allow ourselves to, to, to 
pull like draw to draw into that illusion of progress when we are allowed into those communities and are told we are given a space it's under it's in condition it's conditional there are conditions under which we can exist in in the macro and those the the mainstream community you can only exist there if you don't cause any friction if you don't push against the system because the second you push against it you're fucked you're going to get kicked out. This is going to happen. The second that you raise your queer voice in the horror community and say someone that everybody loves is uh, maybe homophobic, you're going to get called a faggot. And your what you thought was your place was conditional and it wasn't really real at all. It's never real. The only time is when when you go and make your own fucking thing and you go and make your own community and you create your own world because you're never going to be unconditionally accepted in the larger place until the the structure changes. Well, to be fair, nothing is real and nothing matters. So, like really just like eat a sandwich, go to bed, wake up again, nothing matters. And then get mad on Twitter. And then get mad on Twitter. And then get mad on Twitter. So is that is that the end? Are we done? We yeah, that's gonna be that's the end of this conversation. Okay. Uh, I'm sure there's like gonna be, of course, tomorrow there will be a new thing on Twitter to be mad at, where we will all um, pile on. I'm sure. Be sure to tune in next week when Cody and I discuss the idiosyncrasies between when um, a bare-chested woman in a horror movie is either showing titties or breasts. There is a difference. There's a difference. That'll be in the bonus episode. <laughs> Patreon exclusive. <laughs> Um, as always, we really appreciate your support of the podcast. Uh, if you're out there listening, we're glad you're listening. Uh, if you want to check us out on the web, you can find us at beardedfruit.com. You can also find us in various places on social media. You can find the podcast at Bearded Fruit Pod on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at C Orians, and you can find Neil. Neil makes things also on Venmo. And uh, as always, we really appreciate your support of the podcast. You can find us on Spotify, you can find us on Google Play Music, and you can find us on iTunes. Anywhere you find your podcasts, uh, you can. If you dig the podcast, share it with your friends, let people know about it, and maybe leave us a review on iTunes so that other people can find us too. We appreciate your support as always, and we will see you next episode. The Warp. Take a sip.